Our text this afternoon marks something of a turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, up to this point, Matthew has been emphasizing the coming of Jesus as, as Messiah, as the promised and anointed one. He's the coming king. He's the, the suffering servant, the one who has come to atone for the sins of his people. And Matthew's introduction of Jesus over these first four chapters has been flooded with quotations from the Old Testament to show that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that has come before. He is the one that all of this has been pointing to. He was prophesied both directly and indirectly all throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. And in our text this afternoon, once again, Matthew wants to point us back to the old in order to see the new that has come in Jesus Christ. His aim is for his readers to behold the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. Now, while there's not much to the flow of the narrative that we're going to look at this afternoon, the the truths that we can glean from it are life-transforming. We're going to make our way through the text under two headings. We're going to look at the movement of Jesus and the message of Jesus. I'm going to read from the SV, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12 to verse 17. This is the word, the word of God. Now, when he had heard that John had been arrested, Jesus withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thanks be to God for his word. Would you pray with me once again? Father, thank you for speaking us, speaking to us through your word. Thank you that you are a God who is communicative. You communicate yourself to us. And would we have uh, ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. Give me grace as I preach your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. First, we're going to look at the movement of Jesus. This is verses 12 through 16. Now, our passage opens without much indication about how much time has passed since, since Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We last saw Jesus in, in that wilderness, and, and before that we saw John at the Jordan River, and now word has reached Jesus that John has been arrested. This signals the end of John's ministry of preparing the way. His, his time has ended. And so Matthew is interested to show not so much the content of Jesus' initial ministry, but the movement of it. Jesus grew up in this small village of, of Nazareth. And after being baptized and hearing that John has been arrested, verse 12 tells us that Jesus withdrew into Galilee. This signals his return back to Nazareth. But shortly thereafter, Matthew tells us that Jesus left Nazareth and went to Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew's priority is to show this this movement of Jesus. But why? Well, Capernaum was located northeast of Nazareth and well north of Jerusalem. Well, Nazareth was this more remote uh, village situated in the hills. Capernaum was this, this bustling town right on the Sea of Galilee. Now, there are a handful of practical reasons why Capernaum might be a place worth highlighting, a better place for Jesus to begin his ministry than, than say, Nazareth. 
Not only was Nazareth this, this more remote village with a small population, it was also looked down upon by everyone. Now remember how nothing good comes out of Nazareth. But Capernaum, centered around its thriving fishing industry, it was this administrative center for the Roman Empire, and it had a population of as many as 10,000 people. All kinds of people from, from the north and the south would have passed through Capernaum, and many would have made their homes there. And it was here in Capernaum that Jesus begins his ministry. But notice that in our text, Matthew doesn't take time to talk about any of these practical reasons why Jesus might begin in Capernaum. Instead, he indicates the one reason why Jesus' ministry must begin here. And this is, this is the reason, because this is what has been prophesied. Now, there are two, two observations I want us to make about the motivation of Jesus' movement. And here's the first. The movement of Jesus was motivated by purpose. And that purpose was obedience to the will of his Father. When Matthew tells us in verse 13 that Jesus left Nazareth and went to Capernaum by the sea, he does not say this as if it was just happenstance, like he went to Dunkin' Donuts instead of Starbucks. No, he, he went with a purpose, for, for a purpose. Jesus had to go to Caper Capernaum because this is what Isaiah prophesied. This is what God had determined from the beginning. So Jesus went to Capernaum. Jesus, the king, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, he comes to earth, but he comes to earth as the humble son, carrying out the will of his father. And this is what, this is what Larry has laid out for us over the past few weeks that we've seen in, the, in these wilderness temptations. At every point of Satan's temptation, Jesus exhib exhibits this unwavering trust in and commitment to his Father. And it's no different here. Jesus must move to Capernaum because this is the will of the Father. This is what has been prophesied. Now I want us to notice something in particular here. Matthew, he quite explicitly teaches us something that is very important for us to understand about God's Word. What we learn and see is that God's Word never fails. God's word is always true. Now, this is something that comes up regularly in our preaching because it's something we regularly need to be reminded of. While for us, we can only hope for our word to come true, we can only hope that people respond the way we want them to when we ask our kids to be quiet right now. It's like we can hope that comes true, but we really can't control it. God's word always comes true. God's word never returns void. It always does what God intends it to do. We read this in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, God's word, be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Every word that God speaks succeeds in the thing for which he sends it. Matthew recognizes that what Scripture prophesies must be fulfilled. So, Jesus goes to Capernaum. Now, this is just one more example of the fact that God's word it just always comes true. So, the lesson for us is to know his word, to know the promises of his word, so that we might trust his word. We don't rely on our own abilities we don't rely on the promises of others or the powers and hopes of nations. We rely upon God as he's revealed himself in his word. The grass withers and the flower falls, 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. And it is going to Capernaum. There's a second thing we can observe about Jesus' movement. So we've discussed first how it was a movement motivated by purpose, this obedience to the will of his Father. And second, we can see that it was a movement motivated by mercy. Really, we see God's mercy right here in Jesus going from Nazareth to Capernaum. Let me explain. We see this in Isaiah's prophecy. Now, what exactly did Isaiah say? Matthew quotes it for us in verses 15 and 16. And this quotation comes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. Let's look again at verses 15 and 16 here. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Capernaum, located in Galilee, was, was a part of the region in the most northern part of Israel. And if we know our, our Bible history, there's something we can say about this. Now, after the rain, we're going to go back about a thousand years. David is king of Israel. And then his son Solomon is king. And after Solomon dies, the, king split, the kingdom splits in two. There's a, there's a northern kingdom known as Israel, and there's a southern kingdom known as Judah. And we can read all about this in Kings and Chronicles, and we see the, the opposition, both internal and external, that these kingdoms faced. But another thing that we see is that the judgment of God promised for disobedience and unbelief, it came upon these two kingdoms. And it came first to the, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, came in 722 as the, the Assyrians came from the north and conquered Israel. And then, about 150 years later, 586, from, from the south, the Babylonians conquer Judah. Now, the nation of Israel took for granted the mercy and blessing of being God's people, and instead they, they presumed upon and eventually forgot these things. And it all began crumbling at the time that Assyria began to invade the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, the area that Capernaum was located in would have been that first area to face God's judgment in this way. The Assyrians came and they, they conquered this area first and took the Israelites out of it as their captives. Now because of this, historically, this territory of Zebulun and Naphtali in the north, it would have been marked by, by the, the stain of this, this judgment, the stain of darkness and death. This region was marked by a people who were historically familiar with darkness and death. But moreover, they were viewed as outsiders by Jerusalem. This area was a, was a diverse area, and over time it had become more and more separated from, from the customs and practices of the Jews. The people from this region, they were largely considered Gentiles. From, they were separate from and outside of the chosen people of God. So much so that the, the prophecy, look at, look at verse 15 there, the end of it, it speaks of not Galilee of Israel, it speaks of Galilee of the Gentiles. And it's here, in this place that's, that's so marked and stained by darkness and the shadow of death. It's here that light dawns, that mercy comes. Now everyone would have expected the Messiah, the anointed one, to show up on the scene in Jerusalem. This, Jerusalem was this place marked by expectation and the practice of religion. And this was a place full of light and understanding and, and faithfulness. But this is not where Jesus shows up. Jesus goes to Capernaum because he is motivated by mercy. 
Where darkness seems deepest, there the light of Christ shines brightest. Now, it's interesting to note that there, there's some difference between Isaiah's prophecy, what we read in Isaiah 9, 1 and 2, and Matthew's translation of it. Isaiah describes how these people, these people were people who walked in darkness, as if it was something they were just passing through. But Matthew is much more emphatic, saying that these are people dwelling in darkness. This is where they live. Darkness is all around them. Their home is one of darkness. Now, maybe you this afternoon can identify with this idea. Maybe you are in darkness because you feel isolated and alone. Everyone else seems to have someone to go to, but this season thrusts you into a dark loneliness that constantly surrounds you. Or maybe you're living in darkness caused by failure. Someone close to you has, has let you down in a massive way. They've betrayed your trust they failed to keep their word. Someone has wronged you. This is not the way you ever imagined your life would go. And now darkness seems to be the one constant in your life. You're dwelling in darkness. Or perhaps you're dwelling in darkness because you cannot bear the weight of your sin. You're the one who has broken your word. You're the one who has disappointed those you love. It doesn't matter how hard you, you try, you, you just keep messing things up. And your conscience nags at you. The consequences you face only seem to get bigger. You feel like you've already you, you've made your home in darkness. This is where you dwell. But it doesn't matter how dark the darkness around you may seem. There is no darkness that can overshadow the light of Christ. It's to people who live in darkness that can see the greatness of the light. What an encouragement this is to us and what incredible hope it should bring. Because if light shines here, light can shine anywhere. The light of Jesus Christ can shine in your life, in your situation, in your circumstance. For the, the light of the Messiah to shine in the darkness shows that Jesus, he came to rescue those in darkness. See, Jesus didn't come to save those who had it all put together, those who had nothing that disappointed them, those who had no challenges, those who were living the suburban dream, those who never let anyone down. Jesus comes as light to those in darkness. And another thing that we see here is, is that this light, the people dwelling in darkness, they, they've seen a great light. On them, this light has dawned. Do you, do you do anything to make the sun rise in the morning? For the sun to dawn in the morning, do you have to do anything? You do nothing. You have no, no power of it, over it, no control over it, but it's going to happen tomorrow morning. The sun will dawn. And just as the sun dawns every day, so Jesus Christ in his mercy shines in darkness. Amen. Behold the, the unmatched mercy of God. This movement of Jesus, it was driven by this purposeful obedience and incomparable mercy. Now in Matthew, his movement to Capernaum leads to our second point, and that's this, the message of Jesus. Verse 17 introduces us to, to a real shift in Matthew's gospel. Now that this light has come to Capernaum, the role of Jesus changes in this, in this book, this Gospel of Matthew. Again and again in these first four chapters, Jesus appears as someone who is pointed to or acted upon. But here, Jesus is the one taking the initiative. Jesus is the central actor. Matthew states in verse 17, from that time. 
Now that Jesus is relocated to Capernaum, his ministry begins, and his ministry begins with the proclamation of a message. This message should sound familiar to us since it's the same message that John preached at the beginning of Matthew 3, verse 2. It just is an aside. I think it's interesting to see what, what esteem Matthew had for John the Baptist, that, that these words that he has Jesus utter as he begins his ministry are the exact same words that John was proclaiming at the beginning of his ministry. And this was the message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The first part of this is a call to his hearers to act. He says, repent. And then he immediately gives the reason for this action. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now the kingdom of heaven, it speaks of God's kingdom coming in the person of Jesus Christ. His rule and reign and glory and light have broken into the darkness of this fallen world. And because this kingdom has come, God calls us to repent. To repent is to to turn away from false living and false hopes. False living is simply sin. All that contradicts and is opposed to the word and will of God. Now of all the things that Jesus could have proclaimed, it's pretty wild that this is what he proclaims. He declares, repent. But we must remember something as Jesus calls out, repent. And what we must remember is this. Repentance is not a work that we do, as if it's now all up to us to respond the right way. Repentance is a gift of grace made possible by the gospel. The law says this. It says, obey and live. Disobey and die. And Satan wants us to believe only this. Because here, there's no room for repentance. There's no room for, for turning, no, no chance to make things right. Either you obey and live or you disobey and die. That's it. The law offers no escape, no restoration. But Jesus doesn't call out, obey. That's not his message. His message is repent. Think about this. Repentance can only be his message if God is a God full of mercy and grace. And this is exactly who God is. He is a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. So Jesus comes, and instead of proclaiming a message of judgment without hope, Jesus shines as light in the darkness and proclaims a message of repentance. For Jesus to call his listeners to repent since the kingdom of heaven is at hand, also tells us that, that this kingdom, while present, is not yet complete. He only calls us to repent because He has come, and He will come again in full, bringing to those who repent all of His light and life and goodness. But this light and life and goodness only comes to those who do repent. And we often think that, that repentance is a one-time act that results in this change of behavior. 
And, and oftentimes we, we, dis, we see this when we describe it as this turning from. So it's just this one-time act, I, I turn from. And what we often mean by that is that that's all that repentance means. Like that's the extent of our definition of repentance. We think that to repent means that we stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing. But while repentance does lead to a change in behavior, it doesn't start there. Repentance doesn't begin with a change in behavior, but a change in perspective, a change in heart and in mind. And it's a change that takes place through the Spirit's work. And it's this, this heart change that leads to the changed behavior. But when we start in the wrong place, we start to see our change in behavior as that which brings restoration, as that which earns God's acceptance. So if I just... If I just turn from this, then I'll be accepted by God. That's not repentance. That's legalism. Repentance begins with that transformed perspective that acknowledges that I'm a sinner deserving of God's wrath. To be thrown back onto my own ability and my own obedience, my own, my own turning from, will only mean more judgment and more darkness. But true repentance, it looks beyond ourselves to Jesus, the, the founder and perfecter of our faith, the light of the world, the one who lived a perfect life of obedience to God and bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Brothers and sisters, it's by his wounds that we are healed. So repentance says, as, as the hymn says, Lord, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. And this isn't something that we confess once. It's not something that we, we only confess in these big moments in our lives. It's every day. This is Jesus' call to us. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Look to me. Trust in me. Turn to me. Obey me. And in looking to Jesus, the repentant sinner lives a life to the glory of God the Father. And this is the crucial way we must respond to God's word this afternoon. We repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And those who are repentant, they throw themselves into the righteousness that Jesus Christ has, has brought them into by the Holy Spirit's work. There's this idea, this theological category called union with Christ. And it's that, that when we are saved, we are united to Christ. And a, and a life of, of repentance is one that's lived as we learn what it looks like to be united to him, to, to think like he thinks, and to walk in the righteousness that he has lived. It's like I quoted from 1 Peter just a moment, about, a moment ago. He, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So, brothers and sisters, we enjoy this union we share with Christ. As we, as we say, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to you and your cross I cling. If we make that declaration, Let's respond with hearts of gratefulness, hearts of, of repentant gratefulness, joy-filled repentant gratefulness, and live into that union that we have been one to in Christ Jesus. And let us look to the one who, in all that he does, even in moving from Nazareth to Capernaum to fulfill God's word, to begin his ministry, in all that he does, he is a God full of mercy and grace. Thanks be to God. You pray with me. Oh, Father, thank you for 
just every page of Scripture, we cannot get away from, from the goodness that you have showed us uh, through who you are. You are a God who is abounding in steadfast love. You are slow to anger. You are full of mercy and grace. And Lord, in response to what you have done for us by, by bearing our sins in your body on the tree, Lord, may we live lives that glorify your name. May we live lives that honor you in all that we do. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.